HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by PASA Sustainable Agriculture. Learn more about PASA's 2021 virtual conference at pasafarming.org conference. You're listening to Fields Podcast. This is Melissa Metric and Wife Marshall. Every two weeks, we're bringing you the stories of people who are working to grow the field of urban agriculture for money, for fun, to feed the hungry, or to green the city. One note, we've been working on this podcast now for over a year, taping a lot of interviews with wonderful farmers and other experts. That means that some material predates COVID-19. We're still including it because these conversations are as important as ever, maybe more so. But don't worry if a guest doesn't talk about how their farm has pivoted in 2020. That just means we need to have them back on soon for an update. In this episode, we're going to explore how people within urban and metropolitan areas produce plants, specifically tomatoes. We first start out by speaking to Steph Gaylor. She runs and owns Invincible Summer Farms that's located in Long Island, where she breeds new varieties of edible crops. She also helps start the Long Island Regional Seed Consortium. So we asked Steph, who saves seeds? I think all people who save seeds are basically closet hoarders. Like we like to hoard things. And <laughs> this is, um, when I was a kid, I, I um, collected baseball cards. So I'm 48 and in third and fourth grade and elementary school, collecting baseball cards was like a really big deal. And I had to have the whole team. I still have my whole baseball card collection. They're not creased. They're in perfect alphabetical order by team and um, last name. So, I mean, kind of, and we, we had vegetables at home. I mean, that, that was kind of the segue. We had vegetables at home. My parents were gardeners and I started saving seeds. And that's pretty much how the whole thing started. And I think every seed saver has to have, you just start collecting more and more. And before you know it, you have a large, large collection. And why does she and other growers save seeds and want new varieties? I think a lot of things that have been available to farmers are um, everybody else has them and there are a lot of hybrids. And when I was, you know, a what they call a market farmer and I was working um, specifically doing another job and kind of growing things in my backyard and selling them to a farm stand, there were just such cool varieties with really cool stories that I wanted to be able to have something that you can impart the story on, but also have something that a customer could buy. And they're like, wow, this is really amazing. And when I started bringing these heirloom tomatoes, cause that's my, that's my drug of choice. 
Um, when I started bringing them into work at the library, there was a lot of older people who said, oh my gosh, I remember this tomato tasting like this when I was a kid. So yeah. that was kind of like a light bulb. And what got Steph interested in these stories? All the graduate work I did was in history and historiography, which is a way of telling a story. Um, it's dependent on the narrative of who is telling the story as to how the story gets told. There's not a grand narrative of, of history. So it's the same thing with seeds. And I think um, locally, I mean, when I first started this, it's, it's more of an evolution. It's like you hear the story of the seed or the variety. And then as it turns out, because it's an oral history, that history may not be correct or it may be entirely wrong. So I, what I do is I look through a lot of archival data. Um, I could give you a good example of this tomato called Phantom du Laos. And it just, it kind of appeared maybe six years ago. And all the descriptions that I had read, it all pretty much said the same thing. This is a Laotian or a Southeast Asian tomato. And uh, people grow it in their gardens. And when a ghost appears, the tomato blows. And I was like, wow, this is really a very basic description. And it doesn't really say a whole lot. And it's in, in, it's, it's in French. So this is a lot, you know. So basically, the bottom line is, as I started looking through all this data and missionaries, you know, diaries, I couldn't find anything about any white tomato in Southeast Asia. And then I contacted a few Loatian scholars who are Loatian, and they said there's no such thing as a, as a tomato that glows when a ghost appears. And by the way, um, they wouldn't have named it after a French colonizer. I think it's kind of funny how the mythology of the story um, kind of takes precedent over what the actual story may be. And I think there's a lot of collisions. I mean, it brings into account like, well, is an oral history, is, cor is that correct? Is, uh, mm -hmm. is taking a native variety that is outside of your culture and giving it a narrative or, or a short um, description is that accurate? Are you co-opting or co coercing another mm -hmm. type of story? I mean, that's just one aspect of a, of a seed because it can't tell its own story, so. In listening to Steph Gaylor, Wyeth and I have found that it's very similar to what Ken Green from Hudson Valley Seed Company is talking about uh, when we interviewed him for a previous episode on seeds. I think it raises a couple different questions and, and Ken raises similar questions about corn and Hanishani culture um, and also Italian culture, for example, and that have these multiple overlapping kind of originators. People have used the seeds in different contexts and how much of different stories do you tell? Do you try to be really complete? If you're just doing a seed catalog for farmers, probably you don't need to or you can't, like you don't have room to get into all of the complexities, but you might have some duty to sort of um, be honest and weigh the relative sort of work put into creating a variety, keeping a variety alive, um, transmitting maybe knowledge about that, you know, how to grow it down mm -hmm. through time. So I, I think that's interesting and in that someone would both um, be an expert at the actual farming, which is hard enough, and the history, which is hard enough, and then combine the two. So that's kind of an well, impressive double job. Yeah, and it's also like the oral history. Yeah, yeah. Because that is where we're getting these stories from, from the oral right. history, right? And then when she actually goes back to talk to the people from this place, they're like, actually, your oral history is completely wrong because it's coming from this other culture. And, and it's being extracted 
from, you know, like this myth is being extracted um, to make it what the certain culture that is trying to sell it or use it or whatever to make it interesting. One place where seed saving is actually very prevalent by the cultures who have produced these seeds is in urban areas. A lot of times people from different cultures move to urban areas and they want to keep growing the varieties and keep on eating the food from where they came from, from the specific regions. So in urban areas, these small growers are actually keeping these varieties alive and maybe even keeping the stories of these varieties alive. Steph talks a little bit about this. You had mentioned urban farming, and that's just as critical a component as somebody who's developing seeds or working in a rural area or a seed company. Urban farmers have access to a different part of the population. They could tell a story about a seed or a variety that I could never tell or a seed company could never tell. There There are varieties just in urban farms or somebody's growing on their their porch or their stupor in their, you know, small backyard allotment. And I think that those are things that are also not being captured. I mean, the story of seeds really spans everyone from somebody who goes into a grocery store to the person who's developing the seeds or saving them or a seed company. It's really, it's every single, every single thing is really is going to make a difference in this. The difference that Steph is talking about is to keep the story of seeds alive or the stories of these individual varieties. These varieties can be transient along with the people that bring them. When when people immigrate or migrate, they're fleeing something, they take their most precious possessions with them. And in a lot of cases, they include seeds. And I mean, that's true in every single country, in every single region, because we, we have centers of diversity or biodiversity. So those things that are there now did not start there. I mean, I think America has blueberries and pomegranates that's like naturally occurring. Everything else is from another part of the world. Um, But having also talking about narrative is I think what really gets removed from that is the narrative of everybody who is touched by a seed and especially the people who are saving the seed or who are creating the seed. I think these are all like, this is part of the the issue with uh, seed transparency because who is saving the seed? Where did this seed come from? Um, Is it a hybrid? Is it open pollinated? You know, is the seed saver or the seed breeder being compensated like Tom Wagner, who's created all these great open pollinated varieties that could easily be replicated, but is living in impoverishment. So I think those are also very important stories that. We just think of seeds as these kind of like inanimate objects, but they are, they're living and they're living creatures and they're living because of, because of what we do with them and to them. But how do we know what varieties we should seed save or keep alive? And where do we grow them in an urban area? There's an amazing amount of things that can be grown in a pot. One of the, I mean, it's really because you know, I mean, everybody thinks that, you know, somehow this large track, these large farming tracks are, you know, how to save seeds. And that's not, that's usually in, in fact, the opposite case, because the people who hold the most diversity are small seed savers. 
Um, and they, some, I mean, there's a woman I know in Vermont, Sylvia Davitz, whose family is from Switzerland and they lived in an Italian canton and she's really, she has amazing varieties, um, but they're basically orphaned because only a few other people have them. Those are stories, but, but I, but she is also just, you know, a regular citizen. She's not a farmer. And I think a lot of people have these stories of seeds that they saved. We have a lot of seeds that are Long Island varieties. Um, we have one called Depinto, which is a tomato. I probably have about 30 just Long Island varieties of tomatoes, let alone, we were like the cabbage and broccoli and Brussels sprout capital, you know, at the turn of the century. So I think most, and I mean, seed companies, the first seed companies were in New York anyway at that time. One of the first seed catalogs was Thorburn. And I mean, it's kind of funny when you when you look at this this these old kind of catalogs but i mean i think i mentioned one of them is the back cover is overlooking the hudson river from the palisades you could see the statue of liberty you could see the statue of liberty and you could also see uh, a steam paddle boat so but i but i mean that also started the race of these people who uh of sea companies who were not who were just distributors and they weren't actually growing their own stuff but what they were doing was they were contacting farmers who were doing that. And so like most of the potatoes came from this guy, Carmen's. He developed some of the first tomatoes, uh, winter keepers, and they're, they're still around. So I, I think that that is really, that cannot be underestimated. Um, just the sheer diversity of things that were out there. One thing that Steph um, talks about is the idea of who is actually saving seed and who is saving these varieties. And most of our concepts, concepts um, about saving seeds is that they are done in these huge mass farms. Um, where she's looking at it in this smaller scale, where a lot of the seed saving is actually happening in urban areas because it is this melting pot of all these different cultures um, you know, immigrants from coming from all these different places and they want to somewhat hold on to their culture. So they hold on to these certain varieties, right? Yeah. But there's not a lot of space in an urban area. So what are they going to do? They're going to grow it in pots. They're going to grow it on their fire escape. And if you, um, you know, if you actually go out there and interview a lot of people, um, especially immigrants from other countries, you will see that that's prevalent in urban areas. And that's kind of something that she talks about. And, and just this concept in general of, um, yes, maybe, you know, I don't even, I forget, maybe it's 60, 70% of our seeds now come from like three or four different massive companies. Like that's where most of our agricultural seed is coming from that are mostly pharmaceutical companies. But she's saying where the varieties and the biodiversity comes into play are these small scale growers that we don't, I, I mean, I shouldn't say we, but, but that I think um, a lot of times people don't even think about like that as part of the work, right? Mm -hmm. The individual specifically in an urban area coming from these different cultures and there, and they could be like thousands of miles away from where that seed originated from, um, but they're keeping that variety going in like New York city, which is kind of incredible to think yeah. about. And then it's not new. It's not this back to the land no. idea. It's as she points out, um, you know, the history of seed saving is tied to cities because people are moving around. They come to the new place. They want to keep 
these varieties they had. Um, they maybe have a little backyard or yeah, they keep the plant alive in a pot. And so you have all these orphan varieties together in a small, in a dense area. Um, you also have people buying and selling stuff. So it makes sense that actually the, the sort of seed companies originate in cities, even though, yeah, the growers are in rural areas, they're, they're near the city, but like several miles away. Mm-hmm. So there's this relationship. It's not sort of like this very stark divide where you have cities on the East Coast and the middle of the country is actually where plants are, whether it's seeds or, you know, the full plant. Um, it's actually this this back and forth that's happening for 200 years to develop these kind of brands. And I think it's interesting. Yeah, I, I sort of hadn't even thought about that. We talked with Ken about the big seed companies. But yeah, so like most seeds are now owned um, by ChemChina, which owned, bought Syngenta, um, which bought a bunch of other companies. Well, that's so one is yeah. ChemChina, which is obviously a Chinese chemical company. Yeah. The other is Bayer, which bought Monsanto. Monsanto had been actually a chemical company originally, and then it's bought by Bayer, which is obviously one of the oldest pharmaceutical companies. They make aspirin. Mm-hmm. Um, but so, yeah, these are conglomerates. I mean, they're buying up the little guys who also some of them who weren't that little. When DuPont bought Pioneer, Pioneer was the biggest seed company mm-hmm. back then. But mm-hmm. then DuPont, again, a chemical company, bought their catalog. Yeah. So it's interesting thing about who owns these commercial varieties versus probably the most diversity is just in people growing whatever they grow and whether they are seed saving or talking to some like stuff or not. Yeah. They're, they're not really thinking of ownership of seed um, and they're not part of that agribusiness system. So it's interesting. I always talked about with Ken. It feels like there's two parallel systems. There's agribusiness and they have a whole sort of supply chain side. And then there's all these other people who are growing food and textiles, um, for themselves or for a community or whatever, maybe yeah. they have a small business, but it's like a totally different shadow kind of system. Yeah. Right? The, the idea of seed as a commodity, mm. um, compared to the seed being uh, seed as commodity and ownership over that commodity compared to, um, seed as, and varieties as a part of one's food and as a part of one's culture. This episode is brought to you by PASA Sustainable Agriculture. Cultivating environmentally sound, economically viable, and community-focused farms and food systems. PASA Sustainable Agriculture's annual conference is one of the largest gatherings of sustainable farmers, food system professionals, and changemakers in the nation. The 2021 virtual conference takes place January 19th to February 5th and features more than 90 sessions on topics that include soil health, climate change, crop production, livestock grazing, urban agriculture, community building, food justice, and much, much more. Don't miss keynote speaker Robin Wall Kimmerer, scientist and author of Braiding Sweetgrass, Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and the Teachings of Plants. Learn more about PASA Sustainable Agriculture's 2021 virtual conference and register online at pasafarming.org slash conference. Will Shandell from Brooklyn Bio is also creating a new tomato variety in an urban area. He is not doing this necessarily to create a new commodity or even necessarily for a cultural reason. He is doing this specifically because he is a scientist and he wants to experiment with creating a new kind of tomato. So he's been working on the spicy tomato project and maybe he could better explain it himself. My name is Will Shindell and I'm one of the co-founders of Brooklyn Bio. 
Brooklyn Bio is sort of an independent research collective. We're a group of scientists who came together and built an independent lab where we could focus on research that was interesting to us and that we felt was important to do, but that was not easily funded by more of the conventional channels. We asked Will how the idea of the spicy tomato came about. A friend and I were talking about all of the uh, really interesting things that are being done with plants these days. There are all these different types of basil. There's lemon basil, there is chocolate basil. A lot of it comes from hybridization. Basil and mint are very closely related. A lot of the small aromatic hydrocarbons that contribute to flavors and fragrances look sort of similar, and so different combinations of these will end up giving you different characteristics. And somehow this conversation pivoted towards spicy basil, and then maybe that's not such a great idea, but what other plants could benefit from being made spicy? And immediately we were both like, tomatoes. Everything you you make with tomatoes is better when it's spicy, right? Like chili, salsa, pasta sauce is amazing when you add a little bit of a spice to it. So we were like, all right, we're 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 doing this. So we started doing our, our homework and looking up, well, all right, has anyone made a tomato spicy before? How hard would this actually be to do? Turns out the answer is actually really simple, and it has been done in the past by accident lots of times. Tomatoes and peppers are actually very close relatives. They're part of the nightshades family. You can actually hybridize tomatoes and peppers and get an interesting tomepper, I guess you could call it. <laughs> Tomeco! <laughs> oh, we have to insert the tomaco a bit. Have you seen the Simpsons episode? I have not seen tomato, the tomaco. tomaco. Oh, God. It's, really? it's worth watching. Like, I might have to pull this up because uh, it is That's amazing. very funny. <laughs> it tastes terrible, but I can't stop eating it. <laughs> we highly recommend you to look up the Simpsons episode called Tomaco, where a tomato and a tobacco plant um, cross-pollinates and creates this new tomato that is highly addictive but tastes completely horrible. But now back to how is Will actually going to create a spicy tomato? Planning this out, we were thinking, if we're going to make a tomato spicy, you know, we want to start with something that already tastes good to begin with, right? We don't want one of those watery things you get in the supermarket that was harvested green and bred for shelf life rather than flavor. Like, we, we want a really delicious tomato that is even more delicious because we added this trait to it. So I I mentioned before that we were practicing tissue culture on a couple of different tomatoes. The candidates we'd picked for this experiment were all heirloom varieties that we picked for flavor. And a lot of them do not look like supermarket tomatoes. One of them was black. One of them was yellow and a little bit pear-shaped. One had stripes. And so at that point, we were talking about developing this non-GMO GMO, this spicy tomato that was going to look nothing like a tomato, not because it was... GMO, but because it's heirloom, even if we did bring it to market, at that point, it wasn't going to be about actually turning a profit off of it. It was about sort of the story that you could tell by putting this on shelves and forcing consumers to think about the produce that they're buying. So let's actually go back to what Will is talking about when he mentions a non-GMO GMO. And the technique that they're actually using to create this new varietal. 
we started planning out the whole engineering workflow, right? You know, start to finish, there's a lot of steps that go into engineering plants. So we get ourselves some tomato plants and we start practicing uh, basically plant tissue culture. You can't just engineer, you know, a whole adult plant. You have to engineer individual cells and then grow those cells up into a whole plant. So that's a whole process that happens on Petri dishes and inside test tubes that looks nothing like your typical plant breeding experiment. And we start designing the genetic constructs that we're going to use to activate this pathway. And this whole time, we'd sort of been thinking that this was just going to be something we would do to make a statement. We didn't intend to actually create a GMO product just because the regulation around that is so difficult to navigate that unless you're Monsanto and have millions of dollars to spend on this process, you're not going to get a GMO through all the trials it has to go through uh, to come to market. But as we were sort of doing all our research, we looked at the definition of a GMO. That's where things got interesting because GMOs, they're not regulated by how you create them, but what you actually put into them. And so the definition revolves around foreign DNA from a different genus being inserted into this organism. And so tomatoes and peppers, they're already the same genus to start out with. And on top of that, we're not even putting pepper DNA into a tomato. We're literally taking a tomato pathway that has been shut down and repairing it. So, you know, taking a, a defective tomato part and replacing it with a functional part from the exact same tomato. This would not have been regulated as a GMO. And so then we sort of started thinking about, well, what if we actually did bring this to market, what would that look like? Because it's, it's a non-GMO GMO. We would have had every right to put that little butterfly sticker. So then we started thinking about, okay, but what's the sticker that we put next to it that says, actually, this was created with CRISPR-Cas9 and that first sticker uh, is not terribly reliable. So Wyeth and I discuss CRISPR and GMOs and propagation in general. If it's using CRISPR, is it actually propagation? Well, CRISPR is just used to make the edit, not to propagate. The plant, yeah. So right? what we're so, really talking about is variety. Yeah, creating new varieties. Yeah, different ways. Right. And explaining how, how and why you think this variety is good or bad or whatever. You know, explaining the context of the variety. I variety, think biodiversity, um, and yeah, the and technique and how to get that variety or biodiversity, and then also the transparency behind creating this variety, yeah. right? And I think that's the big, um, that is what everybody wants in labeling. They want transparency, right? Yeah, yeah. And how these certain words and these certain techniques um, have been co-opted where we think this certain technique is a certain, um, uh, we think that this certain word like organic or like GMO um, we now understand, we now have the transparency behind it, but these larger agribusinesses and companies are actually changing the labeling and changing what that word actually means, right? Um, and so it's, it's like, what is the word heirloom, right? What is the word GMO? What is the word organic? Whoa. What is the word conventional? And I know I'm kind of going out on a limb there, but it's really about transparency. It's really about varieties, biodiversity, transparency in these growing techniques 
and propagation techniques? Uh, I don't think that like organic and GMO have changed per se, like what they literally mean, but I agree that the context initially was no one cared and then suddenly people were afraid. And now there's the scramble to go back and say something different. And that's the context in which CRISPR emerged, which is, so it's not technically GMO, but people are going to read it as that to Will's point. So you have to address that sort of mess. Um, and same with cell ag, which we'll talk about another one. Um, well, so it's, the, it's, like, it's the myth behind the variety, right? Is that what we're talking about? Like you could be talking about the myth of GMO that like people are scared of it or whatever, or um, the myth of an heirloom, right? It's, it's the like same. Better tasting automatically or yeah, better to buy as you're supporting real farmers or something, which yeah. maybe is true. Like maybe that by and large is still true, but, but right. It doesn't automatically mean like not every heirloom is going to be sort of better. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. What I'm talking about, I think this boils to me, for me, this episode boils down to context because I think it's really interesting that both Steph and Will ultimately are talking about growing tomatoes, but what they're sort of most interested in and talked to us the most about was the context, like that social aspect of like how this will be received and what people sort of know and don't know about it, which is so fascinating because um, obviously most of the time they're spending really focused on the growing aspect it, it, when we're talking about this spicy tomato, tomato project at least, but that the, the reason behind it is this sort of social transparency to your point uh, mission of like, well, let's kind of communicate something different or tell different stories. And Steph similarly was like unearthing, going to archives, talking to, to, to other scholars to really unearth these stories. So I don't know. I take away that like, yeah, it's interesting that the spicy tomato project may not have happened quite yet, but, uh, but it similarly is about, you know, reframing um, these assumptions we have about, about the food we eat. So, so broadening our context or changing our context. Yeah. And how that food's grown. Yeah. Yeah. And or all, created. Right. 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 How that variety is created. Yeah. Thanks so much to our amazing guests, Steph Gaylor and Will Schindel. Field's theme music is by Sam Tyndall. Our amazing producing engineer at Heritage Radio is Liam Werner. Field's is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food radio, supported by you. For our fresher content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio you can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network heritage radio network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better fairer more delicious place and we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community subscribe to the shows you like tell your friends and please join the hrn family by becoming a member just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.